Good morning, class! For today's history lesson, we're going to talk about someone very important. The President of the United States of America. Now, I'm sure a lot of your parents have told you that maybe one day you'll grow up to be the President. I want to let you know right now that that is a lie. Not one of you in this class will ever be President. Hello and welcome to the Almost President podcast, weekly coverage of the 2024 presidential election. In a crowded primary field full of losers or almost presidents, we're here to keep you up to speed on the news you need to know. On today's episode, Trump has been removed from the ballot in Colorado and Maine, kinda, but will this hold up to Supreme Court scrutiny? Vivek Ramaswamy's campaign cuts TV ad spending, but don't worry, he's still going to pull off an upset in Iowa. You'll just never see it coming. Nikki Haley's feeling conflicted about what caused the American Civil War, a war that began in her home state, South Carolina, where she was governor, and finally, feeling the Burgum in memory of the 2024 Doug Burgum presidential campaign. So, Kevin, I got to be honest with you, this has been simmering, this news about Trump being on the ballot or not being on the ballot in Colorado, been waiting for a while to talk about it. I've been trying to wrap my head around it as best I can, listening to like constitutional scholars, all kinds of news and media. I even cracked open my constitution to read the 14th Amendment, which it's kind of centered around. So what is going on in Colorado? Okay, so long story short, the Colorado Supreme Court, or I... I don't remember who originally brought the case, but somebody essentially went forward and said, hey, Trump is guilty of insurrection. And under the 14th Amendment, Section 3, it says basically that, you know, no person who has served in an office and has taken an oath and then committed an insurrection against the United States can then run for office again. That's in the 14th Amendment. And you know, maybe we'll get into the specific wording because there's a lot of weird nuances in the in the wording. But basically, the Republican Party sued, took it to the Colorado Supreme Court, and the Colorado Supreme Court ruled that, yeah, this does actually hold up. And apparently, there's some prior case law to back this. There's some prior cases where people were removed from the ballot for committing insurrect, what they deemed to be insurrection. Um, obviously, in the case of Confederate senators and representatives. That was the most prominent case. But yeah, so that's kind of what happened in Colorado. Right. And coming out of the Civil War was originally what the amendment was designed for, so that a bunch of folks who had turned their backs on the Union, who had fought actively against the Union as Confederate soldiers, Confederate statesmen, whatever it may be, couldn't return to Congress and essentially try to put forth legislation that would overturn the results of the civil war that so many people had fought and died for. And so basically the amendment states that anybody who either committed an insurrection or aided and abetted folks that committed insurrection cannot run for elected office. And so, yeah, like Kevin's saying, so they're trying to peg January 6th as Trump committing insurrection. And I think that, I mean, honestly, I was reading through his speech on January 6th, which a lot of folks now, whether it's on Fox News or wherever, want to say that this this couldn't possibly incite a crowd to try to storm the Capitol and overturn the results of a free and fair election. But 
I just want to remind you of the fact that he tells the people at the end of this speech, quote, and we fight, we fight like hell. And if you don't fight like hell, you're not going to have a country anymore. And then he says, so let's walk down Pennsylvania Avenue. When you rile people up like that, what the hell do you think is going to happen? And what's even darker about it is that he didn't do anything to stop it for hours. So there's that whole aspect of it. And then there's the fact that he's kind of befriending and including January Sixers who are in prison for insurrection as a part of his campaign. They're singing the Star Spangled Banner at different events that he goes to. They're saying the the Pledge of Allegiance. They have an official name, the January 6th Choir. So he's still, I mean, that looks like aiding and abetting insurrectionists to me. So if you don't peg the guy for inciting an insurrection himself, then I mean, he's certainly looking to help out the the J6 uh, folks that are that are in jail for actually committing insurrection. Yeah. So I obviously think that Donald Trump committed an insurrection. And I certainly think at the very least, doing Christmas carols with people who committed an insurrection leans in the direction of giving aid and comfort, which is what the text of 14th Amendment says. Yeah. Do we want to read that? Yeah. So it's a little bit lengthy, but I think it's worth reading the whole thing because we'll get into what the GOP's argument is and it it hinges on some of the specifics in the text. So the 14th Amendment, Section 3 says, quote, no person shall be a senator or representative in Congress or elector of president and vice president or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States or under any state who, having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress or as an officer of the United States or as a member of any state legislature, or as an executive or judicial officer of any state to support the Constitution of the United States shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. But Congress may, by a vote of two-thirds of each house, remove such disability. So a lot of words there, but the basic idea is that if you've served in any of the listed categories, which includes any office, civil or military under the United States, uh, in, as, in addition to like Congress, various state roles, whatever, can't have committed an insurrection if they previously took an oath. If they did, Congress could, if they wanted to, vote two thirds to remove this disability. So yeah, that's the text. I think that Donald Trump committed insurrection. I think one of my concerns with this is that there isn't really a formal charge that Donald Trump committed insurrection. And I worry that this makes it very unclear. I was listening to, because I, I, we're talking about Colorado now, but Maine also did this. And I was listening to the Secretary of State give her reasoning. And As she's like- other states, I think, even including states like Wisconsin that are swing states, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, there, there's a couple considering it. Uh, Maine and Colorado are the only ones who've gone forward with this. Right. But this, this woman in Maine was essentially saying, well, hey, if somebody came to me and said, I'm 25 years old and I'm running for president, I would have to strike them from the ballot. And I would have to do it unilaterally. I don't have to go to Congress. I don't have to go to the state legislature or anything. I can just strike them from the ballot. And in the case of Donald Trump, he committed an insurrection, is or, or that's what this secretary of state in Maine says. 
And so I have to strike him from the ballot in the same way that I would strike someone from the ballot who's 25 and wants to run for president. And I just, I don't know if I buy that comparison just because it's so easy to verify that somebody's 25. Whether or not somebody committed an insurrection, I think is quite a harder thing to verify, especially if it's a person who didn't actually commit any act of violence, didn't technically lead the mob in any capacity. He wasn't leading the charge uh, over the gates into the Capitol building. You know, it's not that he didn't definitely. No. and, And like I said, I think it's fair to say that he committed an insurrection. And I think there's probably an existing legal route you could take to like give him some sort of or have some sort of legal backing to the idea that, okay, he did commit insurrection. We can say that definitively. I just don't think we're there yet. And that kind of worries me because, you know, in politics, people use inflammatory rhetoric all the time. I wish they wouldn't, but they do. You know, you have Bernie Sanders standing on stage calling for a revolution. And of course, what he means by revolution is not anything violent. It's not an insurrection in any meaningful sense. But could you then go and say, well, hey, Bernie Sanders has committed an insurrection. He's a member of Congress uh, or a member of the Senate, whatever you want to call it. So he would be disqualified under this this amendment, or at least someone could interpret it that way, uh, if that makes sense. Yeah. And so I agree with you on that. Like, I would feel much more comfortable about this if there was a definitive charge. Like, okay, we've taken it through the courts and the courts have definitively decided that he has committed an insurrection. You know, special counsel Jack Smith goes through with his case and that's the conclusion that they come to because then it would just be kind of, I mean, of course, not to people who uh, have a different view of reality, but it would be have ruled in the courts and it would be passed that, yes, he has committed an insurrection. We've established this. But at the same time, Colorado, I mean, these people, I mean, all Democratic justices, worth noting, right? Partisan. But at the same time, this was something that the voters, the people of Colorado were pushing for. So that's worth noting. Also worth noting is that Trump, I believe, is still on the ballot, right? Because they're trying to get this into the Supreme Court, see what the Supreme Court does. The Supreme Court is very front-loaded with Republican justices, and they've made some questionable decisions um, in their time together, Um, some even verging on horrible, like overturning Roe v. Wade. But it'd be interesting to see what they decide because there's also the fact that this is a time-sensitive thing. I mean, Super Tuesday is March 5th, so we're in the beginning of January right now. And we know that these court dates, I mean, they take a lot of freaking time. So they got to speed things up if they're looking to actually get him off the ballot or see some kind of a result here. Yeah, I think that's right. I think they have to rule very soon. And I think it's a little bit less obvious to me what the court is going to decide on this than I think a lot of people are saying. I think a lot of people are just assuming that they're just going to side with Trump because they're Republican justices. And I think that, you know, that's fair to an extent, but I do think that they have a strong state's rights bent to them. Uh, a lot of justices like Kav- like Kavanaugh, I know, and um, Gorsuch have stated in the past that they're not interested in allowing like a federal abortion ban to exist uh, for the purpose of like defending states' rights. Like they're potentially against that. They've hinted in that direction. So I think it's just a little bit more blurry to me what's actually going to happen there simply because they have that strong states rights bent. But I mean, I got to be honest. I mean, in Colorado, I feel a little 
less bad about it because at least it's like a court ruling. So people had the ability to make these arguments, to come forward. And in a certain sense, you could say, well, hey, this is the case or this was the legal charge of an insurrection, right? Like going up and having this case, this was your day to prove that you didn't commit an insurrection. But in the case of Maine, you just have a secretary of state deciding, yeah, I think this is insurrection. So I'm removing him from the ballot. I can't imagine the court's going to let that stand. That's insane to me personally. It's definitely interesting when you put it that way, because of course, yeah, that was the point of overturning Roe to kick things back to the states. And then you also have the fact that it gets a little tricky when you have justices like Clarence Thomas, who I know, I mean, MSNBC, I got to be honest with you, is pretty disgustingly partisan. I mean, I get what I can out of it, but they just straight up, no chaser, are just like Clarence Thomas needs to recuse himself because of his wife's activism for Trump. And I don't really know if that's the right call, but I certainly think that's something worth considering that that might affect the the judge's uh, judgment on that. I don't know. There's a whole bunch of things with that guy that we could talk about. But as far as this goes, I mean, I was even listening to Chris Christie talk about it in a town hall. And his big thing is that the courts shouldn't decide who's on the ballot. The voters should. And I believe we were talking when we were getting ready for this podcast just about, I mean, of course, like on its face, yeah, that sounds like something I would absolutely agree with. Like it shouldn't be the courts that defeat Donald Trump in this election. It should be the voters. Even if Trump is running from a prison cell, it should be the voters deciding, look, we're choosing a different path or we're choosing this path. We're choosing a second term with Donald Trump. But at the same time, we live in a country where the constitution is the law of the land. And so if it's truly found that Trump is in violation of the 14th amendment, then I mean, what are we going to go against the supreme law of the land? Like, no. And it's, you know, it's tricky because of course that amendment was designed specifically by Republicans in the wake of the civil war who were trying to protect a fragile democracy and a country that's like coming together, but is still kind of falling apart at the seams. But at the same time, in many ways, our country's there right now, <laughs> different contexts, different times, different players, different issues. But I think the 14th Amendment absolutely applies in this case, and it needs to be decided whether or not he was in violation of it. And yeah. I agree. I don't buy that Chris Christie logic, and I think that's what a lot of people say. And there's a part of me that says, if a 10-year-old runs for president, and for some reason the American people are dumb enough to elect him, then we deserve that fate, and nobody should prevent it from happening. But that's just not the way our system works. We have these laws that are in the Constitution that say these are the qualifications that you have to meet to run for president at all, really. And it is the job of these people, these secretaries of state, state courts, whatever, to make sure that there aren't a bunch of people on the ballot who, if we elected them, we'd have to figure out, okay, well, what are we going to do given the fact that they're legally not allowed to be president? And in this current election cycle, there's a guy, Chank Uger, who we may talk about at some point who is running in the Democratic primary, who was not born in the United States, which is a requirement in order to be president. And he's just going to be struck from the ballot. That's just going to be the way it works. So I have no problem with the idea of someone being struck from the ballot because of insurrection. That to me is fine. And I also don't necessarily have an issue with the fact that this is like a controversial ruling, because guess what? It was really controversial in the wake of the Civil War, like post-Civil War, to decide that like half the Senate was not allowed to be seated in the Senate. 
And that, but that's what they did. And it probably right. saved our country because what would have happened if you essentially welcomed all of these, you know, rebe- rebels, all these people who had just betrayed the United States, they were traitors to our country. You just let them right back in and let them go on as business as usual. Like that's not a solution. And so I think it's, it's totally reasonable to me that you could strike him from the ballot. It's totally reasonable as an interpretation of this, that the 14th amendment applies. I'm just worried about the idea that this is getting interpreted by like a handful of people and they're just sort of unilaterally allowed to interpret it however they want. There's no court ruling. There's no civil or criminal trial of any kind. It's just kind of the secretary of state decides, I think this was an insurrection, so I'm going to strike him from the ballot. I don't like that part of it. That's, that's I guess, my stance on it. Yeah, <clears throat> precedent is a big thing here. I mean, you have to think about like, all right. Well, now this is happening to somebody, if, if you're perhaps on our side of the aisle, I'm assuming if you're a Trumper, you've probably stopped listening to us at this point. But if you're on our side of the aisle, it's like, well, great, this is happening to somebody that I don't like. But, you know, you have to think about, yeah, precedent. And, and I agree with you about, yeah, if it's a secretary of state, this, I mean, I don't, yeah, I don't know if I'm comfortable with that. Can we talk about the the grand strategy of this, though? Because... I'm still sitting here thinking that the best nickname for Trump is Teflon Don. He's running this campaign that's based on grievance, revenge, and retribution. And here he has another example that he can twist to his benefit of the quote-unquote Joe Biden or extreme left-wing communist, whatever he wants to label it, using the justice system against their political opponents, namely me, and they literally want to prevent you from even being able to vote for me. Like I'm almost thinking, how is this not going to help him? Which is a crazy thing to think about when they're talking about removing his name from a whole state's ballot. I mean, I know Colorado probably wouldn't go Trump's way anyway, but that's still wild to think that that would still help him. And then my other fear is potential death threats, violence, things like that. I mean, this isn't a guy who discourages people from from acting out in violence, you know, like I have a fear that the people involved in this decision, that the activists that support this decision could actually find their lives in jeopardy. And this could really stoke up even more tension, even more of a potential powder keg in this country coming up to the 2024 election. I have to admit, I am starting to become a little skeptical of these claims that there's going to be a violent Trump supporting uprising. I think there are obviously violent elements amongst the Trump base. I think Trump inflames them, especially when the the larger the microphone he has, the more he inflames them. However, we heard this about every single case that Trump had to get brought in for, that it was, oh, this is going to be civil war. You know, if they try to bring Trump in and fingerprint him and put him on trial, blah, 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 everybody's just going to riot. And then they didn't do it. I, I just think these people are largely full of shit, frankly. I think some of them will seriously commit violence. Um, I, but I think I think our like national security state can easily handle them, no problem. So I, I don't I'm not super worried about it. I mean, I, I'm worried about the idea of like, and I think I can always worry about this, like a lone crazy person assassinating a judge or something like that could happen. I'm not worried about like a full-on civil war. Like I think the Republican Party is largely old people and retirees. 
they're just there's just not enough of a backing for that i think to commit acts of violence so yeah i'm not i mean i see the I, i see what you're saying and it is more the lone wolves that i'm afraid of but there are organized elements that we saw in january and i know i know the people that are prosecuting these guys are trying to dismantle groups like the proud boys and things like that but I don't know. I think, I mean, I I don't know. Maybe I'm reading too much of that Mitt Romney biography and Liz Cheney's book, and it's just kind of getting in my head. But in the wake of the, uh, you know, Romney deciding to vote to impeach Trump and being the only Republican to do so, I mean, he was having to pay for private security for his own family with all the death threats that he was getting. So maybe it's not potentially acts of violence against us, but it's members of our government feeling like they can't vote in certain ways for fear of retribution, which has already happened. Yeah. I mean, I was going to say, I think that's basically already the case in the Republican party entirely. And it's not even so much violent retribution. It's more just, I don't want to be voted out by my rabid base. So I think that basically already exists for the Republicans. I don't think it so much exists for the Democrats. But I mean, yeah, it's it's definitely a valid fear that there could be some lone crazy person. I mean, I remember seeing this on the Trump impeachment trial. Some guy like burst into the Senate room. I guess he had broken in somehow and he was like screaming, you know, oh, don't like throw Trump in jail, you corrupt, like whatever. He was screaming a bunch of stuff and they had to like drag him out of the court. Like that sort of stuff does happen. And it could be that, you know, one of those guys that does that is armed, you know, that so that scares me, that concept. But Yeah, I just I don't think it's a reason to not proceed. We this country, we proceeded again in the face of the Civil War, in the face of a violent uprising of half the country. So I think if it is the case that Trump is guilty of insurrection in a legal sense, I don't think that the fear of violence is a reason to not go forward with that. Absolutely. 110 percent. All right. So plugging along here. What's going on with Vivek? Yeah, so I guess maybe some lighter news, maybe some news that people will be very happy about. I'm just trying to figure out what to do with it. <laughs> this is a story that you pulled, so I'm just trying to like look yeah. at this and like, what? So Vivek's campaign has announced that it's going to stop running TV ads. And this decision comes just weeks before the January 15th Iowa caucus, which, as you may know, is a very important decision point for these presidential primary campaigns. And I think most candidates in the race right now are hoping to pull off some sort of victory in Iowa. That's that's largely the motivation of their campaigns. Yeah, I know Christie's already moved on. I think it's New Hampshire bust for him. Yeah, which is a bad sign in and of itself. But uh, anyways, the campaign has clarified that Vivek is still running ads, just not TV ads. And Vivek has kind of come out and said that this is basically just, you know, TV ads aren't really that important. And it's more important for him to communicate with the, I guess, young people online, the masses online, rather than doing TV ads, which are irrelevant, which, of course, you know, raises the question of why were you running them in the first place? But so here's the thing I that digress. we keep going. Yeah. So here's the thing that we keep going back to with Vivek, and it's that he is trying to appeal to. The young crowd, the terminally online crowd, the TikTok crowd, the X crowd, the Instagram crowd, you name it. But how many of these individuals are actually of voting age 
how many of these individuals are actually going to turn out and vote for him and how many of them aren't already decided that they're going to vote for somebody else. I mean, I'm, I just think that like, if he's trying to like, sure, drum up support with young voters, that's great. You know, next generation, he's a young guy. He's trying to show off that he's young. He's vibrant in contrast to these octogenarian <laughs> candidates, right? Uh, or, or presidents too. But TV ads, I mean, a lot of the Republican voters probably still watch TV. So if you're looking to reach them, you got to be on TV. I mean, I'm not in a campaign strategy room, but I mean, that those are just my initial thoughts. I don't know what you think about this. Well, I mean, frankly, I think that what's happening is Vivek is trying to stop the bleeding. His campaign is in a downward spiral. And the claim that, oh, well, I don't care about TV ads. I just want to get in touch with people via the internet. It's just BS. It's just, it's nonsense. Why would you have run campaign? Why would you have wasted money on campaign ads in the first place if that's what you were doing? So I think it's just his campaign is in a tailspin and he's making an excuse for why he had to make a decision to try to preserve whatever little money his campaign has left. I think that's really what's going on. But yeah, I mean, Vivek has been yet another experiment in the idea of the best way to run a campaign is to run one that is tailored specifically to people on the internet, which you know is where, frankly, psychotic people just gather and argue and scream at each other and do whatever, especially X. X is probably the worst of them all outside of, you know, the extreme places like 4chan and stuff. But yeah, so I think he's a he's a classic case of, hey, running your campaign via the internet is still not a good strategy. I think for what it's worth, though, Vivek, just from talking with people who show an interest in potentially voting for Vivek or just kind of following along with his policies and things like that, seeing if there would be an interest in maybe voting for him in a primary, perhaps he tears it up. Like, I think he's at his best when he's on TV, when he has somebody that he is debating with one-on-one so that he can look smarter than them so that he could sound smart so that he could field every question he gets. And before you even realize what he's doing, he's sold you a used car. That's a dud. And you're driving it out of the lot and it breaks down two miles down the road. That's where people buy what he's selling. So I think cutting these TV ads is definitely poor strategy, but I still think he's going to try and plaster his face all over the news as much as he can on any news network that'll have him, on any podcast that'll have him. Vivek, honestly, come on the Almost President's podcast. We'll have you, which I guess is, is pretty... Uh, it's pretty shitty to say, but uh, hey, if it gets us listens, come on. But yeah, I, think I, f- I feel like coming still- on our show has got to be a bad sign for your campaign, right? A terrible sign, but he's just still in, just go- in the name. He's still going to be everywhere because that's what he does. So he'll still be on TV, just not through these targeted ads. So I think it's a bad strategy ultimately, but it's not going to stop him from being in people's eyes, being in people's ears, going all over the place in this big Vivek bus, the Vivek vehicle, if you will. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think that, well, I think f- maybe one one point in the direction of this being at least a not terrible strategy is that 
I do think these news networks, they like having him on. I think he's good for ratings. These arguments that he has with the various different hosts, I I don't think they mind having him on. And I think, frankly, he runs circles around these people. He is so he's very, very good in the debate format. And I remember watching him talk to David Pakman, this YouTuber guy. And David Pakman, at least in my memory, is pretty good at arguing people, debating with people. And it was pretty amazing to watch Vivek just absolutely run circles around him and kind of totally control the conversation. So I think that is one thing where actually his element is not in a, oh, this like inspiring TV ad that will make you feel good and happy. No, it's his his element is he goes on NBC, he talks to their host and he embarrasses them. He makes them look bad. He he makes himself look good in the moment. And I think that kind of works for him. So yeah, I mean, in some sense, I think that should have been his main strategy all along is just let me see how I can get on all of these news networks and be on there all the time. Cause that that seems to be his best his best strategy. And again, we always have to consider whether he's running for president or if he's running for a position in Trump's cabinet. Yeah, that's that's a big thing too. I remember hearing a couple of people say, "Oh, well he screwed, he, you know, why did he do it this way? Why did he appeal to Trump so much?" And I think the real answer is probably that he's not running for president at all. He wants to be Trump's VP, he wants to be Trump's, you know, secretary of whatever, secretary of transportation, maybe, I don't know, just some sort of cabinet spot. And that's probably what his strategy is. And then Trump loves being on TV, he loves rallies, he loves just being in everybody's face all the time. And then Vivek can latch onto that. He's young. He's very, very wealthy. So then perhaps a future presidential run. I mean, I don't, I don't think we're done with Vivek. I hope that I'm wrong, but I definitely, I mean, this is like predicting that the sun's going to come up tomorrow. He's not going to be president. Yeah, for sure. But I, you know, I think it seems like Trump likes him. I think there's a solid chance that he, if Trump wins, he's in Trump's cabinet. That's totally realistic to me. Yeah. All right. So moving on to somebody else who is not going to be president, but has done pretty well in all the debates, uh, but not a town hall. So Nikki Haley was at a town hall in Berlin, New Hampshire, and someone in attendance asked the former governor of the state where the first shots of the Civil War were fired, mind you, asked quote, what was the cause of the United States Civil War? To which Haley responded, well, don't come at me with an easy question. To which I say, he is coming at you with an easy question. That's the easiest question there is probably in American history. Like one word, slavery, done. Next question. Yeah. It, it's really like coming up and asking what is two plus two equals four. It's, it's about the easiest question you could ask. I mean, there are things that you could talk about that led to the civil war. Like why did the civil war hap- not happen 10 years earlier or 10 years later? Like there are still things you could talk about, but the underlying cause is slavery. Like it's so simple. It's, it's so yeah. basic. You could even make the state's rights argument. If you frame it such that it was about state's rights to own human beings as property. And yeah, there was a bunch of states saying no bunch of states saying yes, that simmered for a bunch of decades and boom. Uh, 
but let's let me say Haley's response because I'm not sure if this fits into a wider context of like a question that she was asked before, but it just seems like a disaster of a response. So she says, quote, I think the cause of the Civil War was basically how government was going to run, the freedoms and what people could and couldn't do. I think it always comes down to the role of government and what the rights of the people are. And I will always stand by the fact that I think government was intended to secure the rights and freedoms of the people. It was never meant to be all things to all people. Government doesn't need to tell you how to live your life. And before we even, wow, uh, the, the attendee basically says, thank you. In the year 2023, it's astonishing to me that you answered that question without mentioning the word slavery. So Kevin, I'm, I'm trying to make sense of this response here. I can't. It's <laughs> I'm trying. Well, it reads to me like a classic politician answer. And going back to the analogy of someone coming up and asking her, what's two plus two equals four? If that were the question, she would say something to the effect of, well, you know, mathematicians debate things all the time and math is very important. I have a cousin who's a mathematician and, you know, there are lots of theories and lots of ideas about what two plus two equals four is. And I, I say mathematicians can figure that out. You know, it's just, it's sort of just a rambly and non-answer, which, yeah, it's, it's pretty, I mean, I agree with the attendee pretty shocking that you couldn't throw in basically the most important reason for why the civil war happened i mean arguably the only reason so you know but okay right and and i wasn't sure if some of this gobbledygook was a part of like the message or the theme of her campaign limiting government stuff like that but it just it doesn't yeah it seems to walk around the fact that the civil war was fought because there was people there were people owning other human beings and that was not even remotely okay and so that had to be stopped and there was a coalition of states that said no nah, we're going to keep doing what we're doing and we're going to be our own country so i don't know man i mean i don't love to assume the worst thing first i like to give people the benefit of the doubt right i don't like to cry wolf right i don't like to i don't like to scream racist 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 until until i know right that this person is truly a racist but she I, a, a part of me has to wonder if the reason why she wouldn't directly say slavery is because she knows that that could alienate some voters some white supremacist voters that she might be able to get from the Trump camp, from the DeSantis camp. I, I I don't know. I mean, I I hate to assume something like that, but why else would you know the answer to the question? And she even accused this guy of being a democratic plant, but I would argue he's a terrible plant because that should have been an easy question to answer and she fluffed it. Yeah, I mean, on the democratic plant thing, I always think that's such a dumb response because you you were asked a question. You answered the question. Nobody made you answer the question a certain way. The the idea that oh even it, like even if it was a democratic plan, okay, you answer the question the way you answered it. Stand by your answer or don't. You know or or retract it or say I made a mistake. I should have said this. You know whatever. But yeah, it's I, yeah. I think it's such a BS response. I mean, I guess since we're a history podcast, I will say this thing. I've heard this said by some people. Where once you know a little bit about the Civil War, you're going to say, okay, the Civil War was about slavery. Then once you know like a good amount about the Civil War, you're going to say, well, it was about slavery and it was about XYZ and it was about you know the, the rural and urban divide between North and South and all these various other things. 
industrialization, you could throw a million things at the wall. And then once you know basically everything there is to know about the Civil War, you're going to say, yeah, it was about slavery. <laughs> and so I do think it's it's kind of annoying, but this is what this is kind of the game that gets played where because you can identify other things that contributed to the event occurring, that therefore it wasn't about the very thing that everyone who engaged in it thought it was about, which was slavery. <laughs> but um, but yeah, I right. mean, look, I, I think you're right. Uh, and I can't argue with the fact that what must be going on here is she's afraid of the idea of saying the Civil War was about slavery because there's still a ton of people in the South who refuse to accept that answer and refuse to accept that many of their cultural heroes were massive racists who owned human beings as property. Right. And and I do think as I'm as I'm rereading this this quote here that she almost tries to like pivot it to what her stance on government is to see if she can pander to some folks on the crowd who might agree with her, like saying, I will always stand by the fact that I think government was intended to, yada, yada, yada. That she she pivots. I mean, she really only talks about the cause of the Civil War in the first few lines or so of the quote. But yeah, I mean, it's just it's wild. Like he set a trap for you and you watched him set it up and you fell for it. Like it reminds me of these college presidents, right? With Elise Stefanik, who's pretty goofy in and of herself, but just like, she's trying to trap you. How the hell did you fall for it? So Haley did walk back her remarks, but I don't even know if I like that. (laughs) She told the uh, radio host, Jack Heath Thursday morning, quote, I mean, of course, the Civil War was about slavery, but what's the lesson in all of that? That we need to make sure that every person has freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom to do and be anything they want to be without anyone or government getting in the way. That was the goal of what that was at. Yes, I know it was about slavery. I'm from the South. Of course, I know it's about slavery, end quote. So it seems like she has the same thing. Like she sandwiches, hey, I know it was about slavery. So walks it back a little bit and then goes into her philosophy of government. And then at the very end, the other piece of bread in the sandwich, of course, I know it's about slavery. It's like, I, I don't even know if that was a good, a good walk back. I don't even know if that's really, if you can call that a walk back. Yeah. I mean, again, this is the game that politicians always play where every question you ask them is just another excuse for them to just tear into a lengthy tangent about something that they care about. So that is what it is. But yeah, I mean, it's kind of, it's at the very least telling that she was not comfortable saying this on stage in the moment because there's no way, I mean, like she says, of course I know it's about slavery, right? Everyone knows it's about slavery, but for some reason she felt it would be controversial for her to say it was about slavery. So yeah, I mean, it's a little little sad to see. Definitely. Yeah. A little concerning as well. And of course her rivals were quick to pounce um, the DeSantis camps starting with them. So Ron DeSantis said that Haley quote has had some problems with some basic American history. And that is quote, not that difficult to identify and acknowledge the role slavery played in the civil war. And then David Polyansky, who's an advisor to almost president Ron DeSantis wrote, quote, if Nikki Haley can't answer this basic political 101 question, and then it takes her over 12 hours to sloppily attempt to clean it up, she just isn't ready for the bright lights of the nomination process. 
To which I would respond, do you realize who you're an advisor for? <laughs> do you realize how he's looked under the bright lights? How fucking weird and awkward? Um, as far as this one goes, in my opinion, the DeSantis camp, I know their ads are really based in targeting Nikki Haley these days. But when it comes to this one, if you're teaching the kids in your state that the enslaved population benefited from slavery because it taught them some useful trades, maybe shut the fuck up on this one, you know? <laughs> yeah, definitely a glass houses moment for sure. Yeah. But but I mean, let me let me try to frame this in a slightly optimistic light. Given everything we've just been saying, is this actually maybe a somewhat positive sign? Because clearly, I think Haley up on that stage felt that it would be too controversial for her to say that the Civil War was about slavery. Ron DeSantis doesn't seem to think that's a controversial thing to say, which indicates that maybe Haley was wrong to think that Republican voters in mass or in large numbers are in denial about that fact. I, I'm just I'm just trying to you know put a slightly optimistic spin on it. I, I don't know if I'm probably wrong, but <laughs> DeSantis is drowning, bro. I, I wouldn't look at anything that he's doing and say, "Hey, there's there's some clever strategy to this." He's he's flailing, absolutely flailing. Well, I get that, but I'm just wondering if because I think all of these guys are trying to read their voters and figure out what their voters want them to say. That's always what politicians do, and so I'm wondering. Is DeSantis getting a different read than Haley is, if that makes sense? But I, but I mean, I guess the real answer is that neither of these people matter that much. 60% of the Republican Party is going to vote for Donald Trump, and probably nobody's even paying attention to this conversation at all. Yeah. And so two more takes I just want to get to. So President Biden, who was alive during the Civil War, so he's somebody who ought to know, tweeted pretty quickly after this happened. It was about slavery. So nice little succinct clap back. Chris Christie actually came to Haley's defense a bit, which if you've watched the debates, he kind of does something similar when everybody's kind of attacking Haley because she's starting to surge a bit in the polls, surging, of course, in consideration of the fact that Trump is just dominating all of them. But Christie said, I believe it also at a town hall, that Haley didn't exclude slavery quote, because she's dumb, she's not, she's smart, and she knows better. And she didn't say it because she's a racist, because she's not. I know her well, and I don't believe Nikki has a racist bone in her body. The reason she did it is just as bad, if not worse, and should make everyone concerned about her candidacy. She did it because she's unwilling to offend anyone by telling the truth. So sort of similar to what we were talking about, it almost reads to me, I know Chris Christie's whole thing is the truth matters. That's the whole theme of his campaign. I'm going to call out all of these liars. I'm going to call out Trump for all of the laws that he's broken and things like that. I'm going to tell the truth. So he tries to just put that word in as many times as he can. But we were kind of talking before about this being like a potential dog whistle that Haley did to white supremacists. And I, I might find myself ag agreeing with Christie on this one. Yeah, I was going to say, I I hard agree with that quote. I think that's exactly right. I don't actually think Nikki Haley is a racist. I think she probably is. I mean, I think given the fact that she, I, and we'll get into this, I guess, but given the fact that she was the one who removed the Confederate flag from the state capitol, probably knowing that that might be slightly controversial, tells me that she's not a racist person. But the 
much, much worse conclusion. Well, maybe not worse. Maybe being racist would be a lot worse. But but the potentially worse conclusion is that actually she's afraid to offend racists, right? She She's worried about the idea that she will lose racist voters and she wants to keep them. That, I think, is is at least equally concerning. And even when she removed the Confederate flag from the state capitol, which was a great, great thing that she did, but, you know, objectively on its face, great thing that she did. She even said when she was talking about it that, quote, my job wasn't to judge either side as far as the South Carolinians who saw it as something that's a part of their heritage and history, so they should keep it. And then the other side of South Carolinians who saw it as something that represented hate and slavery. I don't know. I mean, I guess as a politician, perhaps it's a smart thing to say, hey, look, I'm not going to judge either side. But people who would see the Confederate flag as anything but anti-American, like literally a flag that was waved by a country that was fighting against the United States of America. I mean, maybe judge that side a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to come to the defense of Haley on this one, but I will say like, I I sort of understand that I think what's going on here, and I may be reading into this too much, but I think what's going on here is Haley wants to take down the Confederate flag, probably because she believes it's wrong. But in the process of doing that, she wants to stop the bleeding of any controversy that that's going to cause for her. And so she does this kind of, oh, pat both sides on the head, like everybody's okay. I'm not doing anything at all, really. And I don't think she should do that. But in the net, I'm glad that she ultimately took it down. But yeah, I mean, going back to the Christie quote, it makes me worry. Are you afraid to confront the darker elements in your own side? And I mean, my reading of Nikki Haley is that to a certain extent, the answer is yes. All right. So some pretty messed up stuff. Sorry, folks. Not a lot of humor and smiles this week, but uh, sometimes it's hard to... (laughs) have a sense of humor and smile about these headlines. But either way, let's let's move on to feeling the Burgum in memory of the historic 2024 presidential campaign of North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum. So, Kevin, I believe it's my week to share what I'm feeling the Burgum about, which just is to say what has me fired up this week. Of course, similar to the way that Doug Burgum's presidential campaign had the nation all fired up and excited. So what I'm feeling the Bergman about this week is this. So we're in the first week of January. The major holidays are over, whether it's Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, Christmas, what have you. And I'm feeling the Bergman about anyone who worked with the public in any capacity related to holiday shopping. Personally, I've worked as a bookseller. I worked seasonally for UPS, worked on a UPS truck, as well as in the warehouse. And hell, I even worked at a gas station. And for all of those jobs, the holiday season was hell. And I was a part-timer. I wasn't even somebody who was working full-time because I was a student at the time. So I just want to commend every public service employee, every delivery driver, every warehouse employee, every person over there in China, Taiwan, Mexico, Canada, and all the other countries besides America that actually make all the things that we get here and use in this country. and just all the people who worked those high demand jobs during peak season. I even want to give a special shout out to the UPS driver who consistently delivered packages that were for 
an apartment that was not mine to my doorstep so that I could kind of get a sense of what they were going through by at least delivering three packages myself to the apartment they were actually for. So congratulations, everyone who worked in those jobs. You made it through to the other side, and I hope that you're all able to relax as the routine at your job slowly starts to hopefully return to normal and just rest up before everybody comes back in to return the gifts that they don't want without a receipt, which is always a lot of fun, looking up credit cards and things like that. And so that's what I'm feeling the burger about this week, because I think as a country, we always talk about the war on Christmas each year. Shout out to Jesse Waters for being kind of the voice of that this year. But we never talk about the war to survive the holiday season that all these workers undergo each year so people like us can be fortunate enough to give and receive gifts during the holidays. So thank you. You are appreciated. Now get some rest. So thanks for tuning in to the Almost President's podcast weekly coverage of the 2024 election. We'll be back in your feeds next Thursday with more updates. Before you head out, feel free to subscribe and rate us. Leave a friendly comment on the way out. It really helps the podcast when you do. And if you enjoy what we're doing, you can find our Twitter or Instagram in the description below. We'll keep you updated about the show, and we'll also fill your feed with plenty of good old-fashioned memes. Follow us on Facebook as well if you're a Facebook person. Just type The Almost Presidents Podcast into that search bar. And lastly, you can write into the show. Our Gmail is the almost president's podcast at gmail.com, which you can also find in the description.